when it comes to accessible gardening, it really is up to what you need. There is no like sort of one size fits all accessible gardening. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Um, and without a doubt, winter has started to rear its face. I'm looking out the window now and it's blowy and we've had wind and rain. But actually, autumn is a really productive month as well. So anyone that's been growing their own, I'm sure is enjoying the fruits of their labour. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Lizzie Dean, who makes DIY videos on YouTube. She's a very, very keen gardener and I've really enjoyed our chat and it's really interesting how people uh, find a way of gardening even through adversity and we get more into that um, during the podcast. So without further ado, let's start the podcast. Hi, you're listening to Plants and Me, the podcast that is all about plants, gardening and the people who are passionate about them with your host, Alan Lodge. Welcome to the podcast, Lizzie. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Whereabouts are you? Uh, so I'm uh, just on the edge of the Cotswolds in West Oxfordshire. Oh, very nice. And is the sun shining? Uh, it is today, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Good, good. So tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Uh, so I uh, am a programmer by trade and I do that during the days. Um, and then in my spare time, I do a lot of um, gardening. I've got an allotment and my own uh, garden here at the house um, where I grow food and I do a YouTube channel where I talk about um, self-sustainable and zero waste living and sort of um, ways to reduce plastic in the home, uh, ways to live a more environmentally friendly life with a sort of urban homesteading spin if that makes sense yeah it does yeah, excellent and that's uh, that's where we we found you from your from your youtube channel it's it's full of some really really interesting videos but what made you start that um i've been interested in in um i suppose alternative lifestyles <laughs> if that <laughs> makes sense um tiny living and houseboats and permaculture um and various you know earthship houses and and all this sort of um, style of things and, and homesteading. And obviously a lot of that, you have to have land and you have to have um, money and you have to have all these things that obviously, you know, mm. young people in Britain today don't have. No. <laughs> so um, it was really trying to make that work for us and trying to find a way of, of doing the same sort of things, but in, in a way that we could actually achieve. So we started out in a, um, when we had uh, houses down in Kent before, but we started my gardening journey more in a flat in in Reading, um, and we had what you call triple glazed windows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we had uh, you know double glazed outdoor windows, and then there was a big window sill, and on the other side of the window there were single glazed sliding windows. So they were my greenhouses. <laughs> <laughs> So I was growing um, all sorts of uh, microgreens and things in the cavities of the triple glazed windows, <laughs> as you do. Yeah. Um, so uh, growing a lot of our own food. We were living in this ground floor flat surrounded by trees and things. Very, very dark. There was no natural light, but we could still actually um, make quite a lot of food, even mm. in that situation with no garden, no outdoor space. Um just a bit of thinking outside the box hmm. Hmm. Um, and I think that's where my journey started really was with that um, realizing that it didn't really matter we could do it anyway <laughs> yeah yeah and the um, I'm guessing as you're a programmer the technology side of going onto YouTube wasn't uh, wasn't baffling or wasn't uh, uh, scary for you but the actually making the videos was that a new new thing for you um yes and no um I used to do speech radio um I was a uh, you know I ran the speech radio and the news section of my student radio station when I was at uni and then um I did work experience with what was heart but got bought out by uh global I think it was at the time mm -hmm. um which was Reading's 210 FM that's now been bought out again so I don't know who owns it now <laughs> um but I did news radio with them as well 
Um, uh, so I had a sort of background in audio editing um, from a speech radio perspective. And um, I was also a youth worker before I was a programmer. So I used to do um, a lot of um, activities with the kids. And one of the things we used to do was things like stop motion animation um, with plasticine. <laughs> Uh, so we did video editing in that sense. So I'd done, I'd done, dabbled in in um, those sorts of areas of technology before, but I'd not made videos. But I had been running a blog on um, economic cooking mm-hmm. um, for years, um, feeding the two of us on less than nine pound a week. Um, really, was the was the basis of this blog. Mm-hmm. It was all about different ways of shopping and different ways of. Um, sort of preserving food, using your freezer and things to make a tiny amount of money go a very long way in the kitchen. Mm. And when you talk about the two of you, you're talking about? Me and my husband, James, Mm -hmm. James Dean, because, you know, obviously I had to marry him (laughs) then. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and our dog, Charlie. Oh, very nice. Um, And when you talk about the two of you going on this journey, how much of this was you? Or or has he always been a, a willing a willing person on the on the journey uh <laughs> i don't know <laughs> probably not <laughs> not so much <laughs> he, he indulges me that's what wedding vows are for <laughs> exactly <laughs> i let him play on his video games he lets me do what i like in the garden <laughs> that, that's fair enough i think that's a that's a good balance so you've you've got these uh i'm not sure we can call them greenhouses let's call them greenhouses on the windowsill the way you where you started off um and i'm assuming um some of the growing came from the economic side as well obviously if you can sow a few seeds you can get more than what you paid for but when did it get a bigger thing from a growing point of view for you um so we moved out of that flat in reading and we um we bought our house here in the on the edge of the Cotswolds we're not technically in the Cotswolds but we like to say we are (laughs) we're right on the edge um uh, and we uh we've got it's a very tiny house with very tiny footprint um, and a very tiny garden um but it's got a small garden out the front and a small garden out the back so the one out the back is um the flower garden where the dog goes and everything so that's all echinops and um eryngiums and thistles of every variety it's all all blue <laughs> <laughs> salvias and um that's the pretty garden and then out the front it's basically laid to gravel and um it's covered in filing cabinet drawers and uh big grow bags you know the sort of tarpaulin type fabric uh, and i basically started gardening food in this it's about the size of a car parking space in a car park yeah um front garden so it's south facing so it got all the sun um, I've got a water butt out there that runs off the uh, the porch <laughs> roof, guttering, <laughs> and um, and been growing carrots and onions and garlic and beetroots, radishes, um, all sorts of smaller smaller things. Um, had some epic fails with uh, brassicas of any kind, right? <laughs> um, and potatoes have. I've managed to get crops, but all the potatoes have been about the size of uh, a large bean. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I needed to get into the the, um, the ground, really, um, which is when I put my name down for an allotment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very long waiting list here for an allotment. So I was lucky, it only took me two and a half years, but a lot of the people that got them at the same time as me were waiting sort of five years plus. Um which is an awfully long time. I think in most areas it's not that long. <laughs> no, no, definitely not in this area. Um, but uh, there, there's obviously a shortage here, but they're building lots of new houses. So as they're doing that, they're putting in new allotment areas. Um, and I've got one of these. So I've actually got what's technically a quarter plot. Um, and by the time I got it, my health had deteriorated quite a lot. So um, I actually walk with a stick and with a, Rollator, which is like a Zimmer frame on wheels. I don't know if you've seen them. I, I haven't, no. Uh, it's sort of a walking frame thing with a okay. seat in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's 
it's been an interesting journey to get the allotment set up and I've got a lot of advice from uh, people on the allotment committee and other allotment holders. You don't realise what a community allotmenting is until you get started and suddenly you realise like just what a wealth of resources it is that you've opened yourself up to. Um, so we're, we're a smaller satellite um, site but we're attached to the big old allotments um, that already were here in town which is where we put our names down on the waiting list um, before but we're on the satellite site that was set up when the new houses were built so our plots are only half size um, but I've actually got a quarter size plot so compared to most allotments it's tiny but compared to my garden at home it's massive <laughs> Uh, and the amount of food we're getting on off it now is certainly perfectly adequate for two of us. I don't know how much people must get off a full-size plot. Well, it was um, it's interesting. I was speaking to someone about this. The um, the uh, uh, now breeding in in vegetable plants has has come on a long way in um, sixty or seventy years. But the original allotment was meant to feed, I, I believe, a family of four. Um, but actually virtually everyone says exactly the same thing, that actually a full-size allotment can do loads more than that. Yeah, I would I believe that, um, definitely. So um, mine's uh, basically been covered in weed-suppressing membrane, the heavy-duty tarpaulin type membrane, mm -hmm. which I can push my walking frame on and use my walking stick on and things without sinking into the mud. <laughs> and then I've laid raised beds so most of them are made from um they're called pallet collars yep. so the wooden pallets that things arrive on at shops and things from containers some of them come with these wooden surrounds instead of the plastic saran wrap that they use to keep things on the pallets and um, some of them come with these wooden collars and they make really good stackable raised beds mm. yeah they do <laughs> um so uh the allotment committee actually sourced some of those for me. They've been really helpful in helping me get set up with raised beds because when when we first got the plot, we were just sort of waiting and waiting to get started because we were saving up the money to actually buy the wood to build the raised beds. I was thinking I can't I can't be splitting pallets apart myself. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I've had plenty of help. Um, from from people down at the allotments with sourcing wood and building raised beds and things. So we've got raised beds built out of pallet wood, out of um, old fence posts were left at the, the allotment site. Um, the big allotment site actually won an award last year or the year before for um, its recycling and reuse of materials mm -hmm. so it takes donations of things from all over the place and and repurposes them and does all sorts of things that are really environmentally friendly so they've been very very helpful in doing that on my my own plot mm. we got a lot of wood chips from uh the local tree surgeon okay who yeah. they'd have to pay to dump them at the tip or um, wherever they, they would normally dispose of them so they actually give them to us for free mm. and they bring them down and just cut them off the back of the lorry straight into the allotment site um, so they, they have those wood chippers that they take round with them on the road so when they go and mulch trees that they've just chopped down or big branches that have fallen off or anything they um, it all goes in the big hopper on the back of the truck and then they bring it down to the allotment site and we get all this free wood chips I've been doing a lot of um, permaculture style wood chip mulching with perennial veg um and fruit okay so what what sort of perennial veg are you talking about there so i've got um lots of uh, asparagus and then i've got um globe thistle style artichokes i decided not to go for the um sunshade okay yeah um artichoke because apparently they can be quite pests so <laughs> I decided maybe not. Yes, quite, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, lots of rhubarb. Uh, I've got all sorts of different types of sorrel, mm -hmm. uh, ramps and other wild garlic, Welsh onions, um, walkie leeks, all the uh, the really good self-dividing, uh, self-replicating garlic, onion and mm -hmm. leek varieties that I could find on the internet. <laughs> Brilliant. 
so they came in in the post um wrapped in a damp kitchen roll in cardboard sleeves uh came through the post and went straight into the ground uh, and they were all doing pretty well so i lost i lost one set that didn't seem to take but they might they may come up in spring mm, yeah they're they're they can be a funny plant actually um sometimes uh a lot of people feel that they've lost these things and then then up they spring in fact i think the majority get dug out before they've actually died so i'm gonna i'm gonna leave mm. them and see if they come up yeah um the bulbs are still there so presumably they're just dormant and they might come up uh, i think they've got two chances <laughs> <laughs> So interesting, you, you mentioned your health there and um, traditionally gardens gardening's quite, especially an allotment and a lot of people who get into allotment don't actually appreciate this, is, is quite a lot of hard work. I'm guessing it's it brings more challenges uh, with yourself than, than maybe it would for, for me, uh, for example, physically. So what drives you to... To still want to do it i mean let's let's face it it's i mean you could get an arcado delivery every day if you wanted yeah um i mean for me it's the environmental impact um there's multiple different uh issues around food when it comes to the environment so obviously you've got food miles and air miles um particularly mm. when it comes to food but you've also got the uh the packaging and the the processing from each, each stage along the process so um when i was a little kid one of my dad's best friends was a guy called lenny the lettuce and lenny the lettuce was so called because lenny the lettuce grew all the lettuces for all the supermarkets right. <laughs> <laughs> um and my dad actually took what would probably been called horticulture today but was called something else when he was at uh, college age um, and learned all about soil additives and um farming techniques of the hmm. day this has been back in the probably early 70s um when he was at school and so they they used to talk a lot at home i was part of the countryside alliance as a kid and um, we used to do a lot of conservation work um my dad was very very hot on us all knowing where food came from hmm. so we had lots of harrowing trips to abattoirs and things as children <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. I'm a vegetarian now. <laughs> was it was that soon after the harrowing trips? No, actually not. Okay. Um, no, it was definitely not acceptable to be vegetarian in my house. Right. Um, we we reared um, we reared birds for the table um, in the garden. Uh, so yeah, it was very much you have to know exactly where your food's coming from, and you have to know how it's been treated ethically. Um, so we got taken to like battery chicken farms and things to see the difference between how we were doing it and how it was done in the supermarket sort of style commercial projects. Um, I think it was eye-opening and well worth being raised that way. Um, torturous and traumatic to small children. <laughs> Quite. How old were you at this point? <laughs> oh, uh, primary school oh, age, wow. quite young, six, five, six, seven. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Very young. Um, but I could, I could pluck a bird, um, you know, pluck a pheasant, gut a fish, <laughs> uh, skin a rabbit before I was 10. So okay. <laughs> I, I was definitely raised in the sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, but hmm. old school, yeah. do it yourself, self-sustainable raise your own food yeah it's interesting you say that because uh we have a fair fair number of people who live listen in the u.s and i may be uh talking about something i don't know about but i believe there's still quite a few areas of the u.s where people are raised like that yes and actually most of the stuff that um i um was researching and things when i was looking at alternative lifestyles and homesteading and things it's all in the mm. u.s mm. and a large part of that is they they can afford to buy the land they've got the of land course, yeah. their country's just so much bigger yes yeah so um yeah it's it's definitely still very much a way of life in a lot of countries it's really the um the reserve of the you know upper middle classes <laughs> oh definitely um and it's the same with the zero waste lifestyle it's very easy if you've got money hmm. to to live an environmentally friendly lifestyle because you can afford to pay other people to mm. 
do it for you so you can afford to, to have um you know uh veg boxes delivered from the local um mm-hmm. oh, i've forgotten the acronym now um but community um farming projects yes yeah i can't remember the acronym either um, but there's um there's several places who will will deliver in fact some of them are nationwide now um will deliver your um seasonal produce um to your door in a cardboard box yeah um, so the, the, there's a special type of um, organisation, kind of like a non-profit or whatever, mm. that is specifically for community agriculture and community um, food growing. Um, and there's several of them that um, I spoke to and researched that are around my area here. And they do a lot of deliveries and things. And they also do a lot of courses and things where you can go along and find out more about how they're growing so much. And they tend to use a lot of permaculture techniques and things i wish i could remember the acronym <laughs> but it's gone i'll remember it in a few hours yep. <laughs> shoot myself yeah exactly. yeah i do that all the time i think we all do it's interesting you say about um they that can be the reserve for uh the slightly wealthier um and i think there is a bit of a misconception that that can be the same for horticulture as well and actually i think it couldn't be further from the truth hmm. I, I think there is definitely the, the, um, the thought that you have to have you have to have a big garden. Mm-hmm. You have to have space. You have to have um, you know the money to go down to the garden centre and buy the really expensive versions of the plants. From I mean, so for, for where we are, we've got Burford Garden Centre where people like Victoria and David Beckham go, or the Chipping Norton set. So the prices at, at that garden centre, obviously, um, yeah, for that that crowd of people. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's a lovely garden centre. It's definitely a nice day out, <laughs> but it's not where I would source all of my plants from. It's where I'd go for speciality things. Mm. Um, but there's, there's lots of garden centres around here. I mean, you're, yourselves are based um, over in Essex, aren't you? We're in Essex, yeah. Which is where I grew up. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I was down in Bradwell on Sea by the nuclear power station. Oh, blimey, I was only there last week. Were you? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, that's interesting. That's it in the sticks a bit out there. It's, it's one of those areas, certainly in Essex, and I suppose every county has the same. It's one of those areas you drive to, You eventually you feel you're going to fall off the edge of something. Yes, two and a half hours on a minibus every day each way. So five hours on a minibus each day to go to Chelmsford, to go to secondary school. I went to Chelmsford County High in, uh, in, in Chelmsford. Out from Bradwell on Sea. Wow, that that is a it's long a, trip, a long commute. <laughs> yes, yeah, a very very long commute. Um, so you obviously got raised in a um, in a way that helped you appreciate food, um, which I'm guessing led you towards uh, what you're doing today. But what actually, I'm interested to know what actually made you start sharing your journey of these things. You started with a blog, and now now on YouTube. Um, what what started it? Um, as I say, having that background, doing the blogging and doing the speech radio and things, it felt natural to share it. But also, I wasn't seeing what I wanted to do available on the internet. There were lots of people sharing, uh, you know, homesteading on big areas of land out in the States and in Canada and um, in other countries around the world. Um, there were lots of people sharing other lifestyle and 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 journeys and things doing doing various things like you know converting houseboats converting vans into living accommodation all the various other things I was looking at but there weren't really a lot of people who were living in a normal townhouse in a normal town trying to make it happen there Mm. who were living in a flat and trying to grow food Mm. there just weren't people sharing that story um, and showing that it could be done and showing how it could be done and how easily and how cheaply and you know, giving ideas and, and inspiration on, on what things you could try. So it just seemed logical to to share what I was doing so that other people who were in the same position would be able to see. And actually, it's become a lot more um, something that people, I think, are interested in, especially in the last year um so david attenborough's blue planet three two two I think. two two i think yeah yeah <laughs> i'm not 
not good with remembering things like <laughs> this, came out, uh, would have been November, December, year before last. Yes. Yeah. Let's say. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he obviously talked about a lot about the impact of plastic on the ocean. Um, and I think a lot of people started to listen then and started to say, oh, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to change our lifestyle things? And there, there was this movement called the zero waste lifestyle, which is it's built up around the industrial term for basically the, the process from the people who provide all the raw materials through to the, the factory, through to the actual shops, you know, that whole commercial um, pipeline um, of reducing waste at each of those points. And that includes, you know, the packaging that is shipped from the people who produce the raw materials to the factory where they actually make the products because sometimes it goes through multiple factories because it gets combined into more and more complex things as it goes along yes. the, the pipeline. Um, so zero waste is actually an industrial term meant for reducing waste in that in that pipeline, mm-hmm. um, including things like, like single-use plastics in packaging, single-use plastics as in this sort of... Um, saran wrap that goes around the pallets and mm-hmm. the things that um ziplock bags that things get put in and all of these different um stages there um but also things like food waste along the way so we've got a very very strange mentality in this country that doesn't exist in a lot of countries mm. in the world and um, my family all live in france and when you go to the supermarket there the veg is a lot more veg looking <laughs> Um, a lot of the veg in the supermarkets, particularly where my parents are in Brittany, is actually grown um, in people's small plots. Mm-hmm. Um, they've still got this this culture where people um, have their own holding and they, they grow their veg and they sell it to the, the cooperative almost and that then sells to the supermarket. So the food's coming up the chain on a smaller scale, mm-hmm. much more local, uh, much more seasonal cycle on the one hand that's upsetting to them because they can't get things out of season and they've got much more limited choice of um fruit and veg and things that are available in the supermarkets um but on the other hand it's a lot more environmentally friendly and actually as an economic model it keeps the money in the local area because it goes to the individuals growers who are normal people growing on their small holdings um, in the local area. So it's, it's an interesting contrast to what we do here, where we've got this sort of idea that um, the peppers all have to look exactly the same. They have to be universally one colour. So they go into different bins where you have green peppers and orange peppers and red peppers. <laughs> but actually, when you grow peppers, they tend to grow a mixture of colours mm-hmm. of those um, so you get, you know, red peppers that have got a big green streak going up them. Yeah. Um, and they wouldn't make it through the quality control into the supermarket. So that food waste that's dropping out in the commercial um, food production in Britain is astronomically high. And that's one of the things that, um, I mean, these kinds of conversations were things that were happening in my house as a small child <laughs> yeah. um, between my dad and his friends. Um and have continued into my adult life as things that I'm interested in and passionate about. Uh, and it just made sense to to get into gardening. And obviously, I watched that TV show that everyone else watched called The Good Life. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to be them. <laughs> <laughs> because who wouldn't? They were amazing. And you look at them now and you think, of course they were. Um, I mean, they were, they were doing uh, biofuel production in their basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they were taking their vegetable peelings and turning it into gas. And they were using that to fuel their stove hmm. and their central heating. <laughs> and you think that's exactly what people are trying to do today. And this was, you know, this was on television, uh, I don't know how many years ago. I'm not sure when it was. Was it early 80s? I can't think. When I was a kid, it was on. Hmm. I don't know if that was repeats or if that was when it was actually airing. I don't know. We didn't watch much television. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, you, you're into uh, the the zero waste, and what I th- I can almost hear people saying is the fact that 
a lot of people live in a housing estate and they, they look out their window and the people across the road aren't doing anything. So so if I start doing this, it's not going to make any difference at all. What would you say to those people? Start doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am always kneeling or sat on the ground outside my house in my front garden, hmm. which seems really weird. It's, you know, it's a little cul-de-sac. There's the sort of the roadway in the middle where everyone drives and then there's the little car parks and places where people park their cars and things it it's not a place where people stay there's no benches it's not a park or a garden area you know people have got the maybe a a tree or a bush or something in their front garden but most of them are laid to gravel or bricked and ignored as like a just a unusable piece of land out of the front of the house most of them aren't gardening it in any capacity but I see all of my neighbours on an almost daily basis because as they come and go from their lives, we get to stop and say hello, which we wouldn't do if I was sat inside my house. No. That's an interesting view, actually, yeah. And we talk about what I'm doing and they ask me, oh, what are you doing today? You know, and the other day I was harvesting my chamomile, so I've built this hedge of <laughs> chamomile. Um, so you know you have like the the little path that goes up to your front door and sometimes there can be a random strip of grass that's left between you and the house next door Mm -hmm. so we dug that up and turned it into a um, hedge of raspberries which I finally got out I did not realize quite how uh, (laughs) annoying raspberries were (laughs) so I took them down to the allotment when I got it but they've been coming back yeah. I think they finally stopped now. I think I finally got all the roots out. <laughs> but you leave a tiny bit of raspberry root and it's back. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um so I finally got all of that out and I laid it to uh chamomile mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year and obviously that's all come up and flushed out and um has has bloomed. So I was sat out there on the floor with my scissors and my little uh trug <laughs> uh collecting all the flower heads. Uh, I have a dehydrator. Mm-hmm. best piece of kit i've ever bought i did not know they existed <laughs> They're brilliant yeah i found out about it through um american homesteaders on youtube uh they have these big industrial ones but i found a small sort of uh domestic one uh, it was less than 20 pounds uh and i have it in my kitchen and i use it constantly uh so i i do a lot of um growing at home now because I've got the allotment the stuff that I grow at home is mostly floral tea and herbal tea plants so I've got peppermint and spearmint and um, lavender and chamomile and um, all sorts of things like that here at home and other herbs and things like rosemary that I'll grow and dry Um, and then I also do a lot of foraging so um I've got a couple of really interesting uh, foraging books. The two favourite ones, I've got the Hedgerow Ham book, which is um, by Adele Nozadar. No- right, Nozadar, okay. don't know how. <laughs> um, and that's got these beautiful illustrations in it. It really uh, carefully explains each part of the plant. So it says, you know, look for this serration on the edge of the leaves or look for this, you know, particular pattern on the flowers. And they'll have this many petals and so on. So it, it tells you very clearly how to identify them um, so that you can um, be quite clear in, in what you're looking at and the other one I use is the River Cottage um, Handbook Hedgerow Edition yep. um, which is also a great foraging resource um, we did a lot of foraging when we were kids as well okay. again living in Bradwell-on-Sea in the middle of nowhere <laughs> uh, we we spent almost all our time outdoors um and we we did a lot of foraging then as well um you know my dad was interested in all the types of trees all the types of plants all the, the names of all the different types of birds and all the different wildlife so it was just something that we were raised looking at and knowing and i would i will only forage things that i know well or that i've researched well I, I wouldn't go mushroom foraging because I'm not confident in that. I might take a course in it one day. I think it'd be interesting, but it's one of those ones that there's a risk to it. So I wouldn't just go and look it up in a book and go out and do it. No, quite. <laughs> um, I just feel like, it, as far as I'm concerned, 
it would be safer to uh, to leave that until I'm more well versed in it. Um, but things like um, you know blackberries, um, nettles, stinging nettles, um, you know everyone knows how to identify those plants. Um, so there's there's always some way in to start. For me, um, it's the big ones that I do is elderflower. Elderflower yep. is one of my absolute favourites. It goes in all my floral tea blends. It's great for getting rid of hay fever because it's just basically pollen, <laughs> local <laughs> pollen. If you want to overdose on local pollen, <laughs> forage and dry elderflower and make make tea with it. Uh, and your, and local honey. It's another thing we get from the allotments. A lot of the allotment holders have got bees. Okay. And so they produce very local honey here. Um. I'm a firm believer in um, supporting local apiarists, beekeepers in in Britain. We've got the British Beekeepers Association, and um, the, the I don't know how I'd say it. The rights of bees, <laughs> the uh, the protection of bees, is very well um, written in, into our laws, and has been you know going back a long way in history. Um, we don't have the same practices that. Um, concern many vegans and things um that peter the protection of ethical treatment of animals um talk about which happens i know in the states where they have issues with people clipping the wings of bees and and really? um, so on it's more of a commercial um right, okay. honey making venture but that sort of thing is legally not allowed in the uk <laughs> And there's, there's strict laws on what can and can't be done. And we've got a very big association of British beekeepers that um, enforce and, and um, support all of our local beekeepers. So if you want honey and it's got, you know, it goes amazingly well in these uh, floral and herbal teas as a sweetener and things, uh, but also help with that hay fever. Either go down to your local allotment or get in touch with the British Beekeeping Association website and find your local beekeeper and go and get your honey locally because it's got great benefit if you get it from on your own doorstep in terms of the pollen that's in it. Mm, yeah, definitely. My and, top tip. And these days, certainly in this area, um, your local butcher, fishmonger, um, sometimes on the side of the road will have a few pots of honey for sale and yep. that will almost always be local and, and i'm sure they'd know the answer if you asked them and and you'll find eggs on the side of the road a lot of the time as well i don't get eggs often because james doesn't eat them but i do love a good egg but we get them from the allotment holders <laughs> who a lot of them have chickens get an allotment yeah. it will change your life exactly yeah yeah and you mentioned your your father again uh, and it, it it brings me to a few questions that we we always ask people, um, and I'd be interested to know what what your uh, what your reply for the first one would be. Um, but uh, when you first started getting into growing uh, and gardening, and I think it's been a big part of your life pretty much as long as you can remember. But when you first started getting into it as an adult, was there a particular person who inspired you, or a book, or something like that? Um. I've, I've read a lot of books. One of my favourites is the um, RHS Gardening Through the Year. Mm -hmm. um, people who inspired me. Um, yes, definitely. One in particular. I went to school with a girl called Frances Tophill, who was one of my best friends and is now on Gardener's World. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, she is, you know, hugely inspirational in terms of her gardening. I've got several of her books and things. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen her since school you know we're not we're not in touch nowadays but um i would definitely say she's she's definitely very inspirational um gardening something that runs in my family um especially on my dad's side they've all been allotment holders or had vegetable patches in their own gardens and I mean, my dad had one down the bottom of our garden when when we were growing up um in a greenhouse and, a, and vegetable patches and uh his his parents did I, I remember going out um we've got a lot of family spread around europe and things i remember going out to to germany and seeing some of my family that were out there um and one of my uncles had an allotment that we went to and uh, going out and seeing it there and they treat their allotments definitely as gardens hmm. 
not necessarily as as farms. We treat them much more like food production sites. Yes, yeah. <laughs> People are getting more into growing flowers, but some allotments are quite strict about what you can do and what you can't do and um, don't necessarily tolerate growing flowers and things on them ours do um, and you can put benches and things and little wildlife ponds and all sorts um but i know not all allotment sites in the uk are like that but he had um you know a, a lovely sort of chalet lodge thing built on his allotment <laughs> and it was their their they, it was their garden they lived in a flat and they would go down to the allotment and that's where they would have their barbecues and their family parties and um you know, it was full of flowers and, and things. It wasn't just a geometric grid of, of beds full of, you know, the same types of food. It was it was a completely different type of allotment. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, very nice. And it's, it clearly is running in the family through through cousins, I assume, now and, and all sorts of things. It sounds like it's a, a big part of your uh, DNA, if that's the, the right way of putting it. Yeah, um, interestingly, I'm the only one of uh, five kids in my family who gardens. <laughs> oh, really? But the others may take it up later in life. You never know. <laughs> it is something that, um, and it's as a, um, a, we're obviously keen on lots of people uh, gardening as much as we can. And quite genuinely, we, we want people to garden because we know what pleasure we get out of it. I got, I grew up uh, on a nursery and in horticulture, but quite obviously i have to think about uh, running a a plant-based business i have to think about the economics and it's quite interesting how uh, gardening is something that it almost doesn't matter what horticulture does is something that comes later in life for 99 percent of all people yeah and i tell a lie my sister is gardening now actually <laughs> she's um she's renting a, a small house and she's got a small sort of patio area at the back and they've got cosmos and cat mint and all sorts of things growing out out there but it's all container yeah container gardening and container gardening um is really i think a great thing to do especially if you're renting um and if you are like i was i i started gardening when i was 18 mm-hmm in our first flat we had a ground floor flat in a house and we had a patio there and we started and I had containers and things but everything kept dying (laughs) (laughs) and I said I have a black thumb I don't understand this why does everything keep dying and basically I mean I was um, doing my A-levels I was doing uh, five well I was doing six A-levels to start with ended up with five Mm -hmm. uh, and a half (laughs) (laughs) and I was working 60 hours a week because uh, my family was in France and I was in the UK and so I was putting myself through school um financially and things and um i i wasn't watering them i wasn't there (laughs) that was why they were dying that would do it yeah (laughs) um but now um thanks to watching a lot of um american gardeners and things who garden in high desert zones in uh in the states and they all run drip systems drip irrigation systems so um I you know, did some research into it and things. And actually, when you're running containers um, and hanging baskets and things, it can be a very um, water frugal way of watering those. And also, especially if you, like me, have mobility issues and things, um, or if you're ill, like I am, sometimes I end up bed bound. Knowing that your containers are on a drip system on a timer and they're getting watered, <laughs> you yeah. can be in bed for a few weeks and not be down and able to, you know, get get down and water them manually and they'll survive. Because for the first couple of years that we were gardening here um, and my house was getting worse, that kept happening to me and, and um, you know, I'd miss sowing season and so all of my seeds would be sowed too late and then everything gets pushed back in the year or um I'd 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 be in bed for a few weeks and everything will have dried out and died in the in the beds <laughs> and everything you'd you'd grown would be uh feeling the worst for wearing you'd lose huge amounts of it. Some stuff would survive, but um I mean James is not <laughs> he doesn't think about my garden. 
<laughs> Poor man. <laughs> he works very hard. He does six days a week working. So. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll let him off, but only for now. <laughs> but he just he doesn't think to go and water my plants. <laughs> they don't register on his radar of things to do. Well, it's, it's so. quite an interesting thing actually, because uh, I mean, sometimes we we are caring for hundreds of thousands of plants, um, and uh, where I live is on our nursery. Um, but it's quite interesting how sometimes I can forget to look after the um and I'm sitting in the house right now uh, one two three the five house plants we have I can sometimes forget about and it, my wife can't quite understand how I can remember the hundreds of thousands out there but forget these ones in here. <laughs> very easily that's how <laughs> exactly yes yeah and when you're you're walking around to either the allotment or or maybe out in your your front garden um is there a particular tool or equipment that you always have with you? Uh, kneeler. Right. Um, I, I can't really stand. So okay. all of my gardening is done kneeling or sitting down. So um, when it comes to accessible gardening, it really is up to what you need. Hmm. There is no like sort of one size fits all accessible gardening. If you're in a wheelchair, there are raised beds that have um, space underneath for your for your wheelchair and your legs to actually go under. Um, they're like countertops, like you would have in a in a dis, um, wheelchair accessible kitchen. And then um, all the arm span all around you to the sides and in front is you know a trough of soil that you can actually plant in things. If you're um, like me, where you you know walking with a stick and things. It might be that you, um, you you need to raise bed garden where you're not digging. You know, I can't I can't use a wheelbarrow and I can't use a spade because I've got to use a stick to stand up. <laughs> right. So I've only got one hand. I can't um, use a normal wheelbarrow, but there are special garden carts that you pull with one hand. Mm-hmm. You know, that have got a single handle with a you know hand grip and you pull them along behind you and they're on four wheels so that you, you don't need to use your whole body weight to balance them like you would with a conventional um you know one wheel wheelbarrow um there are tools like trowels and things that are on extendable poles or long sticks so that if you're sat in a wheelchair or you're, you need to be sitting on a chair to garden you can reach down to the ground and and you know dig dig your holes out turn your turn your soil there's actually um sort of extendable poles that you can switch the heads on so you can get all your different variety of garden tools and switch the heads off um for me it's it's kneelers um there's also those little wheelie wheelie seats (laughs) that's not a good explanation (laughs) um like little um little seats that you sit in like a sort of bucket seat or a saddle seat Mm-hmm. on wheels that you can scoot around on in the garden from mm-hmm. one place to another where you're sat down the whole time mm-hmm. um so this is all sorts of things that make it more accessible and it really depends on what your accessibility needs are and what yeah. is going to work for you there are some great resources um online particularly there are pots of money available for allotment committees um for people uh, needing to make allotments more accessible so if they have to put in you know wheelchair accessible toilets on an allotment site mm-hmm. um, to make it more accessible or to plumb water to a specific plot so that someone doesn't have to trek all the way across the site to get um, water from a rainwater collection system and, and can get it directly on site you know these things can cost money and there's there's there are funds available for making accessible gardening um, on allotments and things excellent it, there's information on online um it's worth doing a google search to to find out more if it's something that you need mm. yeah definitely um and if those things aren't called wheelie seats they they definitely should be <laughs> <laughs> wheelie seats exactly, i yeah. don't know what they're called i can't, I can't think straight <laughs> i can hear a new brand starting yeah. <laughs> um but it, i'd know exactly what you meant yeah. to be fair i can picture it i just i yeah. I can't think of a decent name for it. It sounds as good a name as I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> and anyone who's been gardening for for any period of time, whether that be 
two months or or 40 years has always had some failures and I always hesitate asking this question in calling them failures because actually often you get more from from these experiences than than you do something that works first time but have you had any notable failures at all brassicas oh my word brassicas to be fair I've not actually done anything with brassicas properly I've not netted them I've not tried hard (laughs) (laughs) but everything I've uh planted seedling wise and uh and further has just been eaten um mostly by caterpillars and and possibly by snails um i'm i'm not into um you know chemical mm-hmm. pesticides insect yeah. repellents and pesticides and things personally mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm much more into companion planting and uh you know like garlic sprays and things like that um for for handling things um and and some of the books and there's just so many there's so many good gardening books yeah, sure. <laughs> um I can't think of the name of the one that I'm thinking of right now, but there's some there's some really good information in in gardening books um, about uh, dealing with with pests and dealing with pests the traditional way. Um, it's only in the last forty fifty years that we've actually had chemical pesticides available to gardeners. All the time before that, we had other methods, and those other methods are sort of being used more now they're not necessarily as effective as chemical pesticides <laughs> i will say that and certainly from an immediate point of view yeah definitely um but uh the other thing is just just um being okay with having salad leaves that have been munched a bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lowering your standards is good <laughs> yeah. uh yeah look I think that's something. Uh, as soon as you start growing food, you learn to appreciate properly won- wonky veg. Yeah. Um, the the weird shapes, carrots particularly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they look like in Harry Potter, you know, they pull the mandrakes out. Yes. That's the soil. That's what most of my carrots look like. <laughs> that, that is a, a brilliant explanation of of what carrots look like in general when you grow them yourself. Um, definitely. I mean, I know I've read things about, you know, if you put more sand in the soil and things, they'll grow straighter, but mine tend to look more like the mandrakes from Harry Potter. But I can guarantee they taste better. Oh, they taste a million times better. And you don't realise how good food tastes until you start growing it yourself. You taste a supermarket strawberry and then you taste a strawberry that you've grown down at the allotment and they are worlds apart. Hmm. Do you think they were different fruit, actually? You would think they were different. Yeah, you would. It's a quite an interesting thing, actually, because I caught myself doing this. My my daughter loves strawberries. She's she's eight, um, and we have uh, every Friday night we have a uh, sit down and have a movie and stuff. And she always wants strawberries. Now, obviously, it shouldn't be the case, but you can get strawberries all year round in this country uh, with no issue whatsoever. Um, and I remember sitting down in, I think it would have been February roughly um and i thought i she had most of the strawberries she went to bed and i thought i'm gonna have a little like a little bit of yogurt um with a bit of fruit and i caught myself putting honey on it there is no way you would do that with with because it wasn't sweet enough exactly yeah Yeah. Um, they're very watery yes there's some strawberry taste to it but they're they're just not the same. Whereas you put a, a homegrown strawberry in your mouth, not a wild strawberry, because wild strawberries are even more pungent mm, in their, mm. their taste, but you put a, a, a homegrown regular strawberry variety from the allotment or the garden in your hanging baskets or whatever, you put that in your mouth and it's an overwhelming flavour. I mean, it's really a powerful flavour. And supermarket strawberries don't have that effect. They're a kind of bland, nice, sweet, taste but they they don't have that kick no no not at all um, they don't make your mouth water <laughs> no <laughs> you put one of those strawberries in your mouth that you've grown yourself and your saliva ducts will go into overdrive yeah definitely um it is they are worlds apart and and as she's got older we've 
we've been able to talk about seasonality and things like that. She's been waiting for a long time for, for blackberries. She absolutely loves blackberries. Um, and they are available at the supermarket. So when we're walking through the supermarket, she keeps on saying, are they ready yet? And I'm saying no. But And, and actually trying to explain to her why they are sitting on the shelf there but why they're not ready is has been a challenge i have to say but yeah um we've got a lot of hedgerows around us so uh we're pretty close i tried one a couple of days ago but we, we're definitely not quite there and i don't want to put her off because it didn't taste good at all <laughs> i think one of the um the really interesting areas of commercial farming that's got me interested at the moment is the um the warehouse led hydroponic farms where they're multi-story hydroponic farming and that fascinates me i would like to see what strawberries from that environment taste like Mm -hmm. because that sort of situation where it's the leds that run from solar power on the outside of the buildings and the you know the water's being recycled within the the building and being filtered naturally um through algae and other plants um and coming back through the through the cycle again so it's it's and there's this fish there's fish in the in the water yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> um because they're putting nitrates back in by pooping in the water yeah it's it's, um, it's a whole ecosystem in a warehouse with solar panels on the roof i think you know there, there's definitely um some really interesting stuff going on but my big question with it all is well what does the food actually taste like it's an interesting thing, actually, because we have uh, some experience in that. Um, so we have played around with finished product or finished, uh, not necessarily strawberries, but um, things like uh, salad leaves and, and definitely chilli plants. Um, but we use uh, a system like that for completely different purposes. So we use it um, for for helping bring along show plants for for Chelsea and Hampton Court and stuff like that. Yes, that um, makes sense, yeah. And we also use it for raising some seedlings yeah, um, and things like that. But because we have got the system, we have taken some fruit, mainly chilies, to 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 crop in that system. Um, and I really couldn't tell that much difference. Now, our, our lights, um, and you can get very, very complicated when you come to these systems. You get different mm-hmm. colored lights for different areas of growing and different stages of growing and things like that. And we've got predominantly lights for, for raising um, cuttings and things like that. Um, but, yeah, there wasn't really any difference in the chilies, at least. Um, and certainly, I know if you treat a chili badly, and by that I mean overwatering it a lot, you can definitely get rid of the flavour. Um, I don't think the lights made much difference. So they are a fruit that suffers from from bad management of not being nice. So I don't think the LEDs necessarily affected the flavour. They, they probably do on certain things. Uh, I also I also am interested in, in the, whether the soil, because there's no soil in a hydroponic mm. um, system, uh, whether that affects the flavour not having been grown in a substrate hmm. and being grown you know in, in nutrient dense water whether that affects the taste and things i just i find the whole area of of farming in general very interesting yeah definitely <laughs> i blame my dad entirely for this is <laughs> there's a worse thing to blame someone for <laughs> <laughs> um but it does it it does make supermarket shopping um, more difficult mm-hmm. because I'm aware of everything I look at. I see now that's wrapped in single-use plastic. That kind of plastic can't even be recycled. That's going straight to landfill and will still exist when I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that thing is completely out of season, which means it's probably been grown either in the Mediterranean right now at this time of year or it's been grown, you know, under... Um, lights and things in a in a false environmental setting so that it can be grown out of season it, just going around and, and being somewhat jaded is that is that the correct yeah. term yeah i think so for for looking at food in a completely different way and 
I think being able to go and grow it yourself. I mean, at the moment, we've got green beans coming out of our ears. There are so many green beans. I've taken to just topping and tailing them and sticking them in the freezer because I can't eat any more green beans just now. <laughs> we've, we've cooked them in every conceivable way. <laughs> but there's, there's just a limit to how many green beans you can eat a week. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love green beans and they're one of my favorite crops because they're so easy and they're, they're so low maintenance um especially like dwarf french beans and things um that don't require any kind of staking or climbing facility you just bung them in the ground and water them and they come up and they just produce yeah they really do uh they're great things so that's and that's my I, kind of gardening <laughs> yeah exactly without a doubt yeah definitely. um I'm I'm definitely more of a fan of the um, low maintenance, high yield things, especially with the perennial um, veg and things like that, where it cut and come again with the the you know the ramps and the garlic and things, where you're actually taking the the green from the top rather than digging up the bulbs, um, or with the you know the dwarf French beans, where you you know you pretty much bung the bean in the ground, water it, and leave it and just come back when you want the food <laughs> there's not a lot to it i like that kind of uh, crop a lot more than i like things that require um insulation with fleece and, and netting and all these um interventions just because i'm so lazy <laughs> <laughs> and i think that's often the better way for people to get into gardening to be honest um there is uh, this the whole maintenance free gardening if you take it to its nth degree, it doesn't exist. Um, and I don't suppose ever will, unless you're talking about maybe robots, but even then someone's got to look after the robots and or write the, the code or program it or wh whatever. Um, but low maintenance definitely exists. And I think people starting smaller will help that um, because you learn what is low to maintenance. And actually it's interesting what's low maintenance for one person isn't necessarily for the other because you mentioned potatoes well i can put potatoes in my garden whenever i like it i won't touch them i won't water them i don't generally bulk them up because i forget um and it's the time of year that you're meant to be doing that is the time of year i'm running around the country showing showing all our our flowers at flower shows and stuff like that but we still get a massive a massive crop with with no issue at all but for you doesn't work so people almost have to learn as they go along uh, i know some of the country's best gardeners and i'm doing sort of quotation marks in the air here because um, they wouldn't necessarily say they are but they're very very accomplished gar gardeners and they will almost always have a crop they can't grow um, i know someone who's won something like 25 Chelsea gold medals and can't grow an onion. Um, whereas other people find it really easy. Yeah. And it's also what you like to eat. So for me, spring onions is a great crop because you just plant a new row every week or two <laughs> <laughs> and they keep coming. And we eat so many spring onions and salad leaves because we, we love a good salad. Mm, All definitely. throughout the summer, we just eat spring onions and salads and we're eating all these charlotte potatoes and things but we have to buy the potatoes because i just can't grow the potatoes <laughs> <laughs> and yet people on my allotment sites are coming away with wheelbarrows full of the things <laughs> yeah it is really strange and i don't think it's one of those things actually a little bit of a, a mystery isn't isn't too bad is it but uh, it's one of those things i don't think i'll ever get to the bottom of why certain people can't grow certain things and um tomatoes i grow huge amounts of tomatoes last year because of the heat wave earlier in the year we had a real drought issue um and the heat wave was just so strong and even though i was um hand watering from my rain but my tomatoes they just didn't put on any growth until after the heat wave had passed so they didn't start growing until probably late august um early september last year and so by the time the first frost came they were still green 
<laughs> there were there were lots and lots of tomatoes, but they were still green. So I ended up trying to make a green tomato chutney, and then yeah. I burnt it and lost the entire crop. <laughs> oh, <dear>. <laughs> <laughs> so this year I've still got green tomatoes, but um, I'm I'm hoping that I'll be slightly more productive with them. Mm. And actually, sometimes uh, September is often very kind to us, so you you've still got time. Yeah, they they've all set. They're, they're all on there. They're all green, and it's still warm. So <laughs> I've got my fingers crossed that they will will turn red. Um, I'm wondering if you can get that spray because my dad used to work. Um, he used to spray the tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what the salad place he was working at was called. Um, but when he was a teenager down in Kent, his job used to be to spray the tomatoes. Okay. <laughs> so they come in. Um, they're picked green, and they are. Uh, you know, shipped to the supermarkets green, and then they're sprayed and they ripen when they get there. So it's uh, I'm trying to remember it's carbon dioxide of sorts. I can't remember, but when um, when you're growing them naturally, once one goes red, it starts releasing this yes. chemical that they spray on them, and that's what turns all the other ones red. So I wonder if maybe I can force them along if I find out what it is they spray them. <laughs> You can do it with banana skin as well. Banana skin. Yeah. There um, we go. So you can put banana skins underneath. And I'm trying to think, you could put bananas, but why not eat the banana? So I'd put the banana skin. Um, now, bananas probably, I'm guessing, are the most unenvironmentally friendly. Yeah, I don't eat a lot of bananas because of the air miles. What I would say is I guarantee on your little cul-de-sac there, <laughs> um, there will be a lot of bananas eaten. Um so you could probably, you could make up a little box and say banana skins wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Please give me your banana skins. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But yeah, bananas um, will help ripen. Um, but I will also ask my dad because uh, our nursery was founded on growing tomatoes. Um, we don't do it anymore other than for ourselves. Um, but my granddad's founded our nursery um, with, with my nan. Um, and tomatoes was were absolutely ever acres and acres of tomatoes. Um, so he will often know the answer and I said carbon dioxide out loud just then I can't remember whether that's the case because we haven't commercially grown um, tomatoes since before I was born Uh, but um, I know banana skins placed underneath tomato vines can help definitely I'll try that (laughs) I'm gonna get red tomatoes this year it's gonna happen yeah. yeah so if people wanted to find out a little bit more about you and um, check out your YouTube channel, what's the best way they can get in contact or, or take a look? So uh, my handle is Lizzie Dean Makes, so L-I-Z-Z-I-E-D-E-A-N, and then Makes as in I make things with my hands. So it's uh, all sorts of things make, mend and grow around the home um, and garden. And I'm on YouTube, Instagram and Facebook with that. Excellent, and we'll make sure we put those those links in the, in the show notes so people can uh, uh, link back to you. Um, brilliant. Well, it's been really, really nice chatting to you. Really, really interesting. You too, Alan. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, no problem at all. It's been, it's been fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you, and and thank you for thank you for joining us. Um, I know people are going to take a lot from from what you had to say. Great. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Plants and Me podcast. We'll be back soon. If you can't get enough of all things plant-related, pop over to plants-uk.co.uk. And if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.